All right, we're going to turn to today's scripture, which comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. We're going to read it in the NIV. We want to encourage you to find that in your pew Bibles. Uh, many of them are the NIV. Um, and we're going to do uh, an uh, alternate reading, which means that I'll read the first verse, and we'll all respond with the verse after that. We'll keep going back and forth until the ends. Again, it's Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. We ask that you please stand uh, once you are ready to read the scripture as able. Again, it's Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. May the Lord bless the reading of God's word for us. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Well, friends, uh, today's message is called um, Blessed. Uh, that, that's that's the <laughs> title from last week. But today is called Blessed. And so I think it is appropriate for us to ask the question, what is the blessed life? And so blessing isn't just a religious word for us, but it is a word that means fortunate. Or uh, even in uh, the Beatitudes, which we will read in a moment, uh, blessed can also be translated as happy. What is the happy life? In other words, what is the life that you are seeking, that you really want? I think that the blessed life, um, as we actually seek, sometimes is different than the blessed life that we say that we want when we're at church. Or maybe when we're at small group, we all know the right answers, right? Uh, but I think, um, you know, this past week, uh, there was uh, the $1.6 billion lottery that was up for grabs. And I believe one person won it in South Carolina. I, I, I don't think they've come forward yet. But $1.6 billion. Can you imagine that, brothers and sisters? You wake up, and the day before, you were who you are now with however much money is in your bank account, but you wake up in the morning and you find out that you have a lottery ticket that's worth 1.6 billion, with a B, dollars. Is that not the blessed life, brothers and sisters? Would you not say that's blessed? Now, I want to kind of confront this uh, because I think you're going to find this dichotomy between what we say on Sundays Right? You've probably heard me, uh, preach before, talking about how money can't make you, can't buy you happiness, right? That people who win the lottery aren't any happier than people who don't in the long run. Yes, in the short run, of course, 
right? It's just obvious. You will be very, very happy that morning when you wake up when, with your $1.6 billion. You'll probably be really happy for the next year. But what researchers tell us is that lottery winners, after about a year, that happiness fades. Right? And so, you know, you probably heard all these stories before. And, and there's an article that someone wrote this past week that said, pray that you don't win the billion dollar lottery. And they're talking about all the stories of people who were ruined by winning the lottery. Uh, and then, you know, it, there's kind of this dichotomy, that sort of this, this, uh, disparate, thing that you're hearing too, that <laughs> in Quora, which is just a, a, a forum where you can ask questions, someone asked, if I pray to God, will he let me win the lottery, right? And one of the things we're going to talk about is blessed are the poor, right? Is that the blessed life? If God wants me to be happy, why wouldn't he let me win the lottery, right? And then there's this other thing, uh, this article that says $220 million, not enough for a lottery winner. So this was in 2005 when $220 million was the highest jackpot in the history of the lottery. Now $220 million sounds like chump change to us, right? Like, oh, $220 million, I don't even play the lottery when it's that low, right? You know, wake me up when it's a billion dollars, right? But back then, that was the highest lottery take ever. One person won it in 2005, and that person said, it's not enough. I am going to find a way to turn this $200 million into a billion dollars. And we look at people like that and we say, what is wrong with you, right? If I won the lottery, Pastor Steve, if I won the lottery, I would do good things with it, right? I would help the poor. I would build the kingdom of God. It wouldn't change me. I wouldn't quit my job, right? I, I would stay married to the person I'm married to. I would, I would continue the life I have, right? It won't change me at all. Come on. Come on. <laughs> Is that really true? Uh, th- this idea of this person that we mock, $220 million is not enough. We find that this is just true of a lot of us in human nature. I want to read this quote uh, by Richard Rohr that he gave in a talk. Um, so he said about wealth, he said, I don't think I'm being unfair or unkind in saying this, but I think it's a sociological fact. Normally, the very definition of wealth of a wealthy person is that you are never satisfied. I want to say that again. I think it's a sociological fact. The very definition of wealth of a wealthy person is that you are never satisfied. Never The very character of greed is it creates an impossible internal dissatisfaction that always wants more. And when you get that, whatever it might be, that thing that you want, then that doesn't satisfy. You need the next thing. What the spiritual leader does is just stop the whole game. Just stop it. This game of covetousness and desire, because you are setting yourself on a course that will only make you more and more dissatisfied. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not asking you, I'm I'm not interested in the Sunday school answers here. I don't think God is interested in your Sunday school answers. Like, oh, of course money won't make me happy. When in reality... That's what we're seeking. That's what we want. I want to show for you a video. I thought this was funny because this guy dared to be really honest in ways that I think church people often aren't, 
right? Myself included. We're just way too noble for that, you know, to, to dream of winning the lottery, that that'll make us happy. And maybe not even the lottery, but whatever it is that you think is going to make you happy, when you think about your job, your career, making a certain amount of money, brothers and sisters, let's just be honest. And this guy is super honest. So let's watch this video. Oh, I think I have to go to the next slide. <laughs> Winning the mega All right, let's try that one more time. <laughs> Researchers say that winning the mega millions, one billion dollar jackpot won't make you happier. Let me find out on my own. Let me find out. I don't need y'all. Y'all ain't research me. I can make I can make happiness appear. Don't worry about me. I don't care. I've seen all the lottery shows, and you know what? People wish they never won. Ain't ain't gonna be. And I wish I never met broke at all. I want to find out on my own. I can win the billion dollar jackpot after taxes. That's what five sixty. After Sally May, I got what six million dollars left. Let me be cool. I'll be all right. I could do a lot with six million dollars. Don't worry about me. I want to find out on my own. I'm hard-headed. I'm stubborn. I'm going to be different. I'm going to pay my little tides, and I'm going to go on about my way. I'm going to disappear into the darkness. Ain't no Kev on stage. It's Kev on disappear. I don't even know. Ain't no social media. I'm moving to Valdosta, Georgia, in a mansion in Valdosta. Don't tell me what I won't be happy. I want to be happy. I'll do it. (laughs) I I appreciate the honesty. (laughs) What really is the blessed life? Will that make you happier? Whatever it is that you are seeking, will it make you happy? And brothers and sisters, um, I think that there is this, this, uh, this is what will lead us to understanding uh, the Beatitudes that we're going to be talking about. Jesus is going to tell us, what is the blessed life? Who is truly blessed in this life? And it is the opposite of what we normally think. Because the things that this world promises will lead to blessing, inevitably don't. But uh, uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, who who is a Bible scholar and uh, a pastor who actually passed away this past week, um, he said this about um, our desire for the spiritual life. He says, basically, you are not going to want the spiritual life when you believe that there is something out there some external circumstance, some raise, some amount of money, getting into some school that will make you happy. You're just not going to want it. So I want to throw the quote up on there so you can see it exactly as it is. A person has to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way. As long as we think the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice, or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility or winning the Powerball lottery. (laughs) We are not likely to risk the arduous uncertainties of the life of faith. A person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he, before she, acquires an appetite for the world of grace. Brothers and sisters, Maybe we think we can have it both, right? But Jesus actually tells us otherwise. You cannot serve God and money. You're going to love one and hate the other, right? 
And so let's at least be honest, right? If you are not thoroughly convinced, I applaud your honesty. If you're like the guy who says, well, you know what? I know people say that, but really, I don't believe them. I really don't. I really do believe these things will make me happier. I really do believe I will be different. I really do believe I'm not going to let it go to my head. I'm going to be grounded. I'm going to be the exception. Brothers and sisters, what Eugene Peterson is saying is that if you believe that, you're not going to really truly embark on the spiritual journey. You're not going to really want the kind of blessed life God wants to give you because you're going to think you can get it somewhere else. Right, And that, brothers and sisters, I think is a good way of setting up what Jesus is talking about in uh, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Right, And so what it tells us is that he saw the crowds. The crowds were following him because he was healing people, because they saw the miracles. And they're like, what is this? Who is this man? They wanted to find out more. So big crowd gathered around him. We're told that it's the mountainside. Right, And so we normally call this discourse the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's not a mountain like Mount Everest. (laughs) If you're picturing that, it's kind of a funny scene, right? That you're picturing this huge mountain. It's like, how did people hear Jesus? What were the acoustics like on this mountain? Um, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Monty Python's The Life of Brian. Uh, It's a comedy. It's very silly. It's the same people who did uh, the search for the Holy Grail. And uh, there's a scene where these people are trying to listen to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and they're really far away. And so they're like, wait, what did he say? Blessed are the cheesemakers? What? Is that what he said? Blessed are the peacemakers, not cheese, right? But they couldn't hear, right? Uh, what, What scholars think is that it wasn't a mountain per se, but it was a hillside. Right, So it's the Sermon on the Hillside. And we are going to spend a lot of time, the, the majority of the rest of this school year, talking about the Sermon on the Mount. Many scholars believe this was the, the crux of Jesus' teaching. And as we have been discussing, what this is telling you about is life in the kingdom. How do we live the kingdom life? In other words, how do you live the blessed life? What does the good life look like? And this was not meant to be taken in bits and pieces. Part of the reason why we can't understand the Sermon on the Mount is because we just drop into it. We, you know, we just drop in somewhere into the Lord's Prayer or somewhere into, you know, Jesus's random teachings and we read it and they're incomprehensible to us. They are meant to be read in sequence. It is meant to be a progression that leads us into the blessed life. And today, we are dealing with the introduction. So, blessed. Jesus gets people's attention just by saying the word blessed. Because who doesn't want to be blessed? Or, as I said, another way to uh, describe this is happy. Who doesn't want to be happy? And here Jesus tells us who the happy people are. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here we, we see poor in spirit. We're going to come back to it, um, talking about not just poverty, but spiritual poverty. And brothers and sisters, just know that when this appears in uh, Luke, there isn't the word in, in spirit. It just says the poor. Blessed are the poor. And that word for poor in the Greek means the most destitute, the bottom 2% of society. This is not poor the way we think of poor. 
that you still have some means. Maybe you still have a home. Maybe you still have a job. Not in Jesus' time. This poor were the completely destitute. You had nothing, like literally nothing. However, in the continuum of poverty, the majority of people in Jesus' society were poor. The vast majority of people, right? Um, And so this would have spoken to the people. They would have said, well, that's me. You're saying I'm blessed? And what you are going to see in this is the great reversal. We've been talking about this. In the kingdom of the heavens, in every plane of existence, from the ground on up to the highest heavens, that's the kingdom of the heavens, where God wants to rule. That Jesus is taking the things that we normally think of as the good life and turning it upside down. And brothers and sisters, what you are going to see is not just this one. Because how many of us really think, blessed are the poor? Right? That Quora question, will Jesus let me win the lottery if I pray? If I ask God to let me win the lottery, will I win the lottery? How many Quora questions are, will God make me poor if I pray that I can be poor? Come on, brothers and sisters, let's be honest. We don't want this. We don't. Nobody wants to be poor. Right? But this is literally Jesus is saying, blessed, happy, the best life is for these people. Makes no sense. If you understand that that makes no sense, then you're ready to understand this. The rest of the blessings don't get much better. They don't make sense in this world. Even the ones that sound kind of good are still not really all that desirable. Let's take a look. We normally used to read this list. I used to read this list as, I should be like this. These are desirable traits. But really, they're not desirable. Very, very few of them are desirable at all. Let's take a look. Blessed are those who mourn. That means someone just died in your family. How many people pray, God, that person who's sick, could they just die? And so I go into mourning. Nobody prays that. Now, God's not telling you to pray for that. He's saying, I know this world. There are people who are mourning. There is loss. Yes, I came and I'm healing the sick. I'm giving you a taste of what the kingdom is supposed to be. But let's be honest. It is not that yet. People still do get sick. People still do die. And when they die, you mourn. And when you mourn, you're sad. And if you're mourning, you are blessed. You are blessed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, the shy, the ones who are trampled upon, the ones who are taken advantage of. Do you ever hear people say like, you know what? You just have to be bold, right? You just have to take what you want. You can't be a sucker and just wait for your turn to come. Those people don't make it in life. You have to be the one in class. You raise your hand first. You have to be the one that, that when you know, your, your boss asks you, who wants to do this project? You're not like, oh, does anyone else want to do it? You raise your hand first. You go to front, the, the front of the line. That's what we think blessed people are. The people who take their chances. The people who seize it and grab it. That's the opposite of the meek. And it doesn't make sense. Blessed are the, wise, the people who are in the back of the line, the timid and the shy. For they shall inherit the earth. That's the complete opposite of what you have been hearing. 
right? We have been hearing that the people who own the earth, who own all the stuff, are the ones who take all the shots, take all the chances, grab their opportunities, right? Won't take no for an answer. That's the opposite of meekness. Makes no sense. Let's go on, right? It's going to make even less sense in some ways. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, I have to admit, this one sounds kind of good, right? But it's not saying blessed are the righteous, because that would make obvious sense to us. It says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know some people like this because you see them on your social media feed. They won't shut up about the injustices in this world. Right? They won't stop moaning about it. They won't stop moaning about the, the latest uh, police shooting, right? About the, the latest voter fraud or the later, latest thing that makes their, their stomach turn. And many of the, uh, us, we can't stand to be around those people for too long. Like, you know what? I know it's like kind of not a cool thing to do, but I'm just going to silence them. You can do that on Facebook, right? Like, they're just, they, they won't shut up about the, the need for justice. Brothers and sisters, that word righteousness, it's not the kind of self-righteousness that we think of. It means the rightness of the world. One way to translate rightness is justice, the way this world should be. People who look at this world and their heart continually breaks and they ache and they moan and they can't stand that this world isn't the way it should be. Those people are never satisfied. They're always heartbroken. And yet, God, Jesus says, blessed are these people. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They're not satiated. But they will be satisfied. Right? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Again, in our society, we think of these people as being suckers. If you're merciful, if you take the moment to stop and help people, then you are going to miss out. If you give away your money, then you are giving away your money, right? That's my hard-earned money. I'm not going to do that. If you stop and show mercy to the people who are being trampled on, you're going to get trampled on. That's what our world tells us. Even though we might look at merciful people and say, yeah, that's admirable. But really, this world doesn't seem to reward that. But it says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, the pure in heart are the innocent. Have you met someone who's an adult, who's just really pure in heart? They're really innocent, right? There's like, somebody says something, and there's some innuendo in what they said, and everyone starts chuckling. And giggling, <laughs> you said, right? Like you're just laughing about stuff. And that person's like, what? I don't get it. I don't get it. And you look at that person, you say, bless your heart, which means you're a complete idiot, right? <laughs> oh my gosh, you're so naive. You're so gullible. You're so innocent, right? We don't look at those people and think that they're blessed. We think that they're suckers, right? We think that those people have the wool pulled over their eyes. They're going to miss out. People are going to take advantage of them. You know, one of my best friends used to say this about me in high school, like, you know, Steve, you need to wise up. You're, you're just too innocent of a person. I really wasn't, but that's what they thought. They're like, oh, these good church people. Oh, my gosh, you're so innocent. 
You know, the pure in heart are not people we normally look up to. We look up to people who are worldly wise, who can see every angle, who are not so gullible, but we are clever. Cleverness is almost the complete opposite of being pure in heart, right? You see everyone's motives. You know everyone where they're coming from. And you can spot all those ulterior motives, right? The pure in heart might get a phone call and say, hey, you owe the IRS $5,000. And you're like, oh, I owe the IRS $5,000, right? And then you'll pay $5,000 and you'll find out that those are just scam calls, right? You're like, but I believe them. We think that the the pure in heart are going to get taken advantage of. And we're told, they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the cheesemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Now again, being a peacemaker might seem like a good thing, but is it really? What is a peacemaker? There's two sides who are fighting. One side is over here and says, I want this. And the people on the other side, he says, I don't want that. I want what I want, right? And they're fighting. What is a peacemaker? Is someone in the middle. You're trying to build a bridge where people can meet. Richard Rohr says this about peacemakers. He says, people who build a bridge get walked on by both sides, right? Do you think peacemakers are really blessed? Have you seen peacemakers in the media? You ever see peacemakers on on the news? Usually, peacemakers are getting beaten by police in riot gear, right? Peacemakers are getting uh, arrested like Martin Luther King Jr. Peacemakers are getting bullets in their heads. Blessed are the peacemakers. We look at that, and yes, the Sunday school version says that's a good thing. But this world says, do you really want to spend your life on that? and get walked on by both sides. Is that really the blessed life? And then, verses 10 through 12, I mean, it it just, I don't even need to explain this, why this doesn't seem like a good thing. Blessed are those who are persecuted, who are suffering, who people are spitting upon them for the sake of righteousness and justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, when they hate you, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. You're being falsely accused, falsely imprisoned on my account, on the account of Jesus. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Brothers and sisters, we look at this list, and maybe you've never seen it this way. But when the people heard this in Jesus' day, it would have been so radical. Really? Word? Okay, Jesus, you're the one going around and you were reversing all the wrong in this world. All the brokenness, all the illness, the people who are sick, you're making them whole again. We believe you are a man of God. There's something different about you. Now, we want to know what this life is supposed to be like. And he says, you who are poor, you who are trampled upon, you who are taken advantage of, you who are persecuted, you are blessed. It's so radical. Now, remember what it says. 
Yours is the kingdom of heaven. That's the two promises that are, are uh, that frame this whole exchange, right? Uh, verse 10 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. Verse 10. Blessed are those who, pers- who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. Remember, what is Jesus' central teaching? The kingdom of the heavens is at hands. It's right here. In other words, you don't have to climb up to the heavens to get it. It's come near. It is available to you. Available to who? To all the people on this list. And the people on this list are not the people who have, who have achieved much. They are the people who have lost. Do you notice that? If you mourn, you will be comforted. If you're meek and you're getting trampled on, everyone is going in the door before you, you will inherit. If you are poor, then you will have the kingdom of the heavens. You will have everything. If you're hungry and thirsty, you will be satisfied. You will be filled. You're empty, and that's most blessed. Because now you can be filled with the good stuff. That's what this is talking about, brothers and sisters. What is the problem that Eugene Peterson said with wealth? With the promise of wealth. It's not even just wealth. But it is the illusion that you think by having and getting these things that you have what you need. And so Eugene Peterson is, is, uh, is opposing that to grace. He's putting those two things side by side and saying, if you are not convinced that, well, that the things of this world will not satisfy you, you will continue to chase them and you will have no need of spiritual things. Let's go back to the poverty of spirit. What does that mean? Now, in Jesus' time, there were people who were not considered poor in spirit. Who were those people, do you think? Who are those, those people? Rich in spirit. Okay, Pharisees, right? Now, we, we, we kind of beat up on the Pharisees, the scribes, these religious leaders, but these were people who followed all the rules. They did. Now, was it kind of legalistic following? Probably. You know, Jesus will address that later, that they didn't have the right heart. But they were people on the surface who had their lives all cleaned up. I mean, for us today, I, I mean, let's be honest. These would be seen as being good Christians. Other would, people would talk nice about them. They'd be like, oh my gosh, you should be more like John the Pharisee. John the Pharisee is, is a good boy. He studies hard, you know. He, he goes to church on Sundays. He goes to a small group every week, right? He gives to the poor, right? He's nice to, to old ladies and, and, you know, he helps them across the street, right? That's what John the Pharisee would look like. Those are the kinds of people, the people who seem to have their act together. And by the way, the scribes and Pharisees knew a lot of Bible. They knew lots of Bible. They had it, uh, they had it memorized. They had lots and lots of knowledge. And for many of us, brothers and sisters, we, even Christians, want to be rich in spirits. We come to church and we do not want to be emptied. We want to fill ourselves with lots of knowledge. One of the things that happens is, you know, <laughs> brothers and sisters, I don't know, I haven't heard this complaint, but I'm just guessing. 
Because if I were you, I would have this complaint. I'd be coming to church and I'd be like, is Pastor Steve going to talk about the kingdom of God again? Like, really, can he just preach about something new? Can we learn something new? Can we have some more knowledge, right? Let's learn, you know, some more, uh, you know, historical context. Let's go to some different books of the Bible. Let's get lots and lots of knowledge, right? That would be riches, spiritual riches. And there's many people who feel really good about their spiritual riches, who brag, oh, Pastor Steve, I read the Bible every year. You know, I know my Bible in and out, right? And oftentimes, the problem is, is that you don't realize how poor you really are. Um, you might have heard me talk about this, but I want to explain why this is. You've heard this story, but let's try to explain why this happened. Um, you might have heard me describe the first confirmation class I ever taught when I was uh, a youth pastor in Maryland. This was years ago. It was a bunch of eighth graders, and I asked them, what is your knowledge of the Bible on a scale of one to ten? Ten is you are Jesus, right? I mean, you are the Bible at that point, right? And a, a, a one is you just heard about the Bible today. Where are you on a scale of one to ten? This is a group of eighth graders, right? Thirteen, uh, maybe some 14-year-olds. Every single person said seven or eight, right? Seven or eight. And, and this is what I told them. I said, you should be teaching this confirmation class, right? You know way more about the Bible than I do, right? Now, were they really seven or eights? Because honestly, at that time, I would have said, I'm about a five or six guys. And to be honest, I wasn't a five or six. I'm pro- I probably was a two or three. <laughs> I really didn't know as much as I thought, right? Why did those eighth graders think they were a seven or eight? And I don't think they were doing ironic- that ironically. I don't think they were trying to be arrogant. But I really think they thought they knew more than they did. It's something uh, in psychology they call the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's a very interesting psychological condition. And I want to teach you about this. But I think uh, I saw this video, uh, this, this TED video on it. it it's, it's a little, it's, it's like a four and a half minutes. I think it's worth watching about the Dunning-Kruger effect. How we think we know more than we actually do. Have you ever met someone who thought they were awesome at something? And they really weren't? Well, this video is going to explain why they think that. <laughs> oh, got to change the slide, right? Oh, went too far. Are you as good at things as you think you are? How good are you at managing money? What about reading people's emotions? How healthy are you compared to other people you know? Are you better than average at grammar? Knowing how competent we are and how our skills stack up against other people's is more than a self-esteem boost. It helps us figure out when we can forge ahead on our own decisions and instincts and when we need instead to seek out advice. But psychological research suggests that we're not very good at evaluating ourselves accurately. In fact, we frequently overestimate our own abilities. Researchers have a name for this phenomenon, the Dunning-Kruger effect. This effect explains why more than a hundred studies have shown that people display illusory superiority. We judge ourselves as better than others to a degree that violates the laws of math. 
When software engineers at two companies were asked to rate their performance, 32% of the engineers at one company and 42% at the other put themselves in the top 5%. <laughs> in another study, 88% of American drivers described themselves as having above-average driving skills. These aren't isolated findings. On average, people tend to rate themselves better than most in disciplines ranging from health, leadership skills, ethics, and beyond. What's particularly interesting is that those with the least ability are often the most likely to overrate their skills to the greatest extent. People measurably poor at logical reasoning, grammar, financial knowledge, math, emotional intelligence, running medical lab tests, and chess all tend to rate their expertise almost as favorably as actual experts do. So who's most vulnerable to this delusion? Sadly, all of us, because we all have pockets of incompetence we don't recognize. But why? When psychologists Dunning and Kruger first described the effect in 1999, they argued that people lacking knowledge and skill in particular areas suffer a double curse. First, they make mistakes and reach poor decisions. But second, those same knowledge gaps also prevent them from catching their errors. In other words, poor performers lack the very expertise needed to recognize how badly they're doing. For example, when the researchers studied participants in a college debate tournament, the bottom 25% of teams in preliminary rounds lost nearly four out of every five matches. But they thought they were winning almost 60%. Without a strong grasp of the rules of debate, the students simply couldn't recognize when or how often their arguments broke down. The Dunning-Kruger effect isn't a question of ego blinding us to our weaknesses. People usually do admit their deficits once they can spot them. In one study, students who had initially done badly on a logic quiz and then took a mini-course on logic were quite willing to label their original performances as awful. That may be why people with a moderate amount of experience or expertise often have less confidence in their abilities. They know enough to know that there's a lot they don't know. Meanwhile, experts tend to be aware of just how knowledgeable they are, but they often make a different mistake. They assume that everyone else is knowledgeable too. The result is that people, whether they're inept or highly skilled, are often caught in a bubble of inaccurate self-perception. When they're unskilled, they can't see their own faults. When they're exceptionally competent, they don't perceive how unusual their abilities are. So if the Dunning-Kruger effect is invisible to those experiencing it, what can you do to find out how good you actually are at various things? First, ask for feedback from other people and consider it, even if it's hard to hear. Second, and more important, keep learning. The more knowledgeable we become, the less likely we are to have invisible holes in our competence. Perhaps it all boils down to that old proverb, when arguing with a fool, first make sure the other person isn't doing the same thing. Did you enjoy this lesson? If so, please consider supporting our nonprofit mission by visiting patreon.com. <laughs> it's interesting, huh? The Dunning-Kruger effect. 
So for many of us, we don't know enough to know that we don't know. And so I expect a lot of you from now on to being like, oh yeah, I'm really bad at that. <laughs> that many cases when you think you're awesome, you just don't know enough to know how not awesome you are. You don't know enough to even gauge how not awesome you are. That was the problem with the eighth graders in the confirmation class, right? They didn't know enough to know that they didn't know. Brothers and sisters, I think this easily translates into the spiritual life. For many of us, we don't know enough to know how much we have to grow in the spiritual life, of how spiritually poor we really are. So oftentimes I talk about these spiritual truths, and they are very, very simple spiritual truths. And this is part of the game that we play. The way that you avoid depth is you go shallow. Right? For many of us, we are afraid of going deeper, partially because we don't know we need to go deeper. So we're like, yeah, 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 Pastor Steve, I know I'm a child of God. I know, I know. Okay, give me something else. But this is the question. Do you really know? Do you really know? Do you really know? Really? If you were a child of God, if you were somebody who lived in the kingdom of the heavens, where God was completely your father and you knew how much God loved you, right? And I've said this before, but maybe this will sink in in a new way for some of you. You really wouldn't worry. Like literally, I'm not talking hypothetically. You really wouldn't worry. You would have much less stress if you really knew that. I'm not talking here. I'm talking deep. How did I begin this whole metanoia series? You guys remember? I told you, I'm not going to tell you lots and lots of novel information. I'm not interested in lots and lots of shallow information. But I'm interested in simple truths going deep. Do you remember uh, the story of the, um, the parable of the soil and the seed? Uh, so we talk about good soil. Um, and good soil is just soil, by the way. What's the problem with, in the story of the parable of the, the good soil and the seed? The problem is that the seed can't go deep enough. You guys remember that? There's places where the seed only goes on the path. It doesn't even go into the soil. Or the seed gets stopped by all the different worries and, and difficulties we have in life. All the troubles keep that seed from going deep. But brothers and sisters, make no mistake, the soil doesn't change, and neither does the seed. The only difference is how deep the seed goes. If the seed were to go really deep, then what Jesus tells us is it will bear just a multiplicity, a bounty of a harvest, so much fruit that you could not count. Hundreds and hundreds of fruit, uh, of wheat, uh, of that crop will just come burgeoning out of the ground. All you need is that one seed, the seed of the gospel of the kingdom, to go that deep. What if that were true? Your problem is not that you lack knowledge. You don't need to know lots and lots about the Bible in a very shallow way. You need to know the simple truths of the kingdom of God and to let those go really, really deep. And I found this out the hard way. Last winter, 
um, I was going through a lot of struggle. And I didn't even realize how much I, I was really struggling. I kind of knew, but it just kept getting worse. So I have these issues of anger and uh, uh, just, you know, anxiety, frustration. And oftentimes what will happen in my life is when one thing goes wrong, I'm okay. When two things go wrong, I got to pray, <laughs> you know, or, or just like, like it's a little harder to overcome. When three things go wrong, when four things go wrong, when five things go wrong, there is no God, right? I just start falling to pieces. I, I just start raging and get angry in such a way where oftentimes I'm getting angry at myself. I mentioned this last week, but I, I really mean this. I, I would self-injure. You guys know what self-injury is? It's like when people cut themselves. I don't self-injure by cutting myself. I would punch myself in the head. That's how frustrated I would get. This is not a story I'm just telling for a sermon. This is what actually happened. I'd be running late for uh, ministry events. Then there would be, and usually it would be because, like, I don't know, maybe I was playing a, a game on my phone. I lost track of time. Something stupid, right? Or maybe I was procrastinating. I didn't look at the clock. Now I'm running late. And then something else happens. Like, I have to go to the store before the ministry event, and it turns out the thing that they always have, of course they don't have it. Now I have to go to another store. The second store doesn't have it either. I have to go to a third store. Not only that, but they're doing construction on 23 on a weekend. Why are you doing construction on 23 on a weekend? And before you know it, I am screaming and yelling and punching myself in the head. And this started happening not just once, but last winter. This is not that long ago, guys. But it happened several times. And a few times I ended up on the side of the road and I'm just heaving and I'd been screaming and pounding the side of my, my vehicle and screaming myself hoarse and then thinking, I still have to go to the ministry event. I have to go pray. I have to go act like Pastor Steve, right? And I started to become desperate. I'm like, what's wrong with me? Brothers and sisters, I got convinced at some point, a few years back, I used to tell people this. I, I think I even said this on a Sunday. I said, I will be mentally ill. I will suffer for, from depression for the rest of my life. I used to say that. You know, just as a fact, I'm like, I'm not even sad about it. It's just true. I'm going to struggle for the rest of my life. And that's what I thought. It was so dark. There was one day I was doing dishes, and I was listening to the song. And the song just talked about light in the darkness. And I heard that song, and I just started crying. I'm washing the dishes, right? And I'm listening to the song, this U2 song. And, and I'm just weeping. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? I'm like falling apart wash, washing dishes, right? And what I realized is I felt so alone. I felt so dark. I'm like, with all the stuff I've learned, all of my Christianity, all of my faith, and I'm still falling apart. And I started to get convinced that what I needed was, you know what, people just don't understand me. Sometimes, though, though she tries, my wife doesn't understand me. People at church, they wouldn't understand me. But maybe there's a subset of people. I, I started to get convinced that what I needed to do was start a, a uh, I was going to start a, um, what do you call it, a support group for people who are suffering from depression and anxiety and mental illness, especially for Asians, because Asians don't seek uh, mental health help, just very, very low uh, rates of, of actually seeking professional help. So I was like, you know what? Maybe if other people knew they weren't alone, maybe I would just feel slightly better by knowing that we have a place where we can at least be understood. And so I, I listened to this book, and the long story short of it was um, 
somehow, I just started listening to this book uh, called The True Self, False Self. And what I was doing is I was actually getting research to start the support group to help other people who didn't know who they were because I thought I knew who I was. Brothers and sisters, this was last January, early January, not that long ago. And I'm listening to this audiobook, and this guy, this Franciscan priest, Richard Rohr, is talking about the true self. Remember? Remember a few weeks ago we were talking about the trial in the desert? Jesus is getting attacked by Satan. If you were the Son of God, then you could provide for yourself. If you really were the Son of God, then you could jump off of this temple and everyone would applaud and you would know you were worth something. If you were the Son of God, then you could have it all and you could have all these things that would make you happy. And what kept Jesus from believing those lies? Knowing who he really was. And who, what is the true self? It, this, brothers and sisters, this is Christianity 101. I don't know how to tell you this strongly enough. You already know this. You already know. But maybe you don't know. Because I didn't. And I heard this Franciscan priest say, nothing special. He said, you are a child of God. That's who you really are. You don't need to prove anything. You need, don't, don't need to do anything. Pastor Steve, you washing those dishes, falling apart, crying, you don't need to clean up your life. You don't need to show up on time to events. You don't have to have all these figured out to be a child of God. What is that? What is that? What would we call that? That is spiritual poverty. You don't need anything, nothing, to have the kingdom of the heavens to have the reign of God, to have this truth be shed abroad in your heart, in your life, that you are profoundly loved. You are profoundly secure. You don't need to look for it anywhere else. But brothers and sisters, you will not be convinced of this until you know, until you know how spiritually poor you really are. Brothers and sisters, I want to be very clear. You do not need to manufacture this. You don't need to convince yourself when you really feel like you're rich. Like, well, Pastor Steve, that's nice for you, but I have my life together. I mean this. I'm not trying to be condescending. Good for you. (laughs) Good for you. I'm being serious. Good. But when, and I do mean when, not if, when your life starts to unravel, when you start to find out that you are not as put together as you think you are, This might be a moment when you can realize the truth. Where that stony ground that is keeping the seed from going in deep starts to part. Instead of relying on the stony ground, you're like, seed, you don't need to go in because I'm good. I have the rocks. I can rely on this rock. I can rely on my grades. I can rely on my good looks. I can rely on my money. I can rely on my feeling of security. I can rely on my feeling of moral superiority. I don't need the gospel. I don't need this story, the truth, that I cannot save myself, that I'm a wretch, that I'm really poor. I'm not rich. I have nothing, nothing of value except what God can give me. And the only way you can have that, the only way you can get that, as far as I'm concerned, is by having empty hands. 
having openness in your life. Spiritual poverty is about not having, not about what you have. Every single one of the Beatitudes is telling you, if you don't have these things, if you are empty in some way, you're grieving, you're mourning, you, you don't have uh, mental stability, emotional stability. You don't have that feeling of being safe and secure in this world. You are empty of these things, then God will satiate you. God will satisfy you. Only God can do it, but only when you are open. And things started to change in my life. That day, washing the dishes (laughs) in my kitchen, it was like a spiritual light bulb. I felt this lightness and freedom. And every day in my life has been about remembering that. I'm a child of God. To truly be free from having to seek these other things for my emotional stability, for my spiritual satisfaction. And brothers and sisters, what kind of pastor would I be if I just kept giving you spiritual junk food? I love you too much for that. I really do. So what I want to propose is if you are sick of hearing these messages, (laughs) just be honest about that. That's it. That's it. If you don't want deeper truths of simple things, at least acknowledge that. But maybe in a little bit of humility, the Dunning-Kruger effect in mind, to say, maybe I just don't know. It's not my fault, but I just don't know. And maybe the next time something starts to crack in your facade that you try to keep up, your image of yourself that is able to handle all this stuff in life, instead of saying, oh, well, I need to try harder. I need to do more. I need to make it happen. You will say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst and are not satisfied yet. And I will just come to you and say, God, I'm ready. Lord, I need you. I need you. I believe that. I'm not just saying that. That's a good prayer, brothers and sisters. I don't have. Therefore, I need you. And ask the priest team to come up. And I just want to give us some time to pray and to let some of this stuff sink in. And I want to speak to people who are experiencing anxiety, stress, fear. Maybe you're afraid because someone in your family is sick. Maybe you are mourning something. Maybe you didn't get that job you wanted. Maybe you uh, didn't get into the school you wanted. You didn't get the raise you thought you deserved. You didn't win the Powerball lottery, (laughs) and you're disappointed. Brothers and sisters, I'm being serious. This is the entrance into the kingdom of the heavens. If you can say, God... I'm not going to rely on those things. I come empty-handed. Just admit it. The spiritually rich try to act like it's all together. The Pharisees go to Jesus and say, Jesus, your message is good for those really destitute people. But look at us. Look at how much law we know. Look at how much scripture we memorized. We don't need this. We're beyond this. And Jesus is like, you'll never know. Because you're dead inside. You've cleaned the outside. You've made yourself impervious to the good seed that wants to cut through and go deep. 
brothers and sisters, we don't need to falsely humble ourselves, but simply to acknowledge your life. What are you actually struggling with? As one mystic once said, God comes to you disguised as your life. Maybe this is God knocking at the door of your life. Instead of saying, God, what's wrong? Why aren't you blessing me? To say, maybe you are blessed with this opportunity to turn to God. What are you struggling with? What is keeping you up at night? What are you hungering and thirsting for that you cannot have? Just acknowledge that. Come before God empty-handed and He will satisfy you. Brothers and sisters, maybe let's just take a moment, just take a deep breath, real deep breath, in through your nose, out through your mouth. Let's do it one more time because that feels good. In through your nose, out through your mouth. Now, without going down the rabbit hole, thinking about all the problems you have, can you just think, and I literally mean think, just name it without any passion, without any struggle, one thing you are struggling with. One thing that is not perfect in your life. And you really have been putting a lot of emotional eggs in that basket. If I got this, if I got the new iPhone X, my life would be better. If I got into this school, my life would be better. If I had a boyfriend, if I had a wife, if I had a husband, if I got this job, if I got into medical school, my life would be better. Just be honest, you already know. Don't worry, I, I, I won't tell. Just admit that. Just receive this without reacting. Just, just hear it. You not getting that thing, you not having that thing, you are blessed. You are a child of God. God already loves you. God has accepted you. You don't need to get the next thing. You don't need to get the promotion. You don't need to prove to anyone. You just are. Receive that. Just be not even with words, just just a, a, a giving away of the ways we've hardened our hearts. Yeah, but come on, winning the lottery, we not. Yeah, but I'm stubborn. I, I really do feel like I need to figure this out on my own. Maybe some of that will just give way a little bit. The seed can start to come to it. You are my child. I give you everything. Brothers and sisters. God gave his son, Jesus Christ, on a cross. He died a a, a very, very painful and shameful death to demonstrate to you how loved you are. He did that for you. He did that for you. Before you cleaned up your life, before you figured it out, before you memorized all that scripture, he loves you already. It is a present reality where you just receive it and accept it. Maybe we can just think on that as we sing this closing praise song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.